Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 13, chapter 1, starting with a little quote from the chapter. But why military writers and everyone else after them suppose this flanking march, which saved Russia and destroyed Napoleon, to be the profound invention of some one person is very hard to understand. First of all, it's hard to understand what the profundity and genius of this movement consisted in, for it takes no great mental effort to figure out that the best position for an army, when it is not under attack, is where there are most provisions. Do you think Tolstoy thinks this applies to every aspect of life, or just military aspects? For instance, would he apply this questioning to his own success with war and peace? Interesting question. You could say that the army was just on, yeah, the the path of least resistance. They weren't they weren't in battle. Uh, they went where the resources were. It also just happened that that position was a great flank. Warren Kovarfer says this. One thing I've noticed in this book is that Tolstoy really likes to knock people down a peg. It appears he has no qualms about doing the same to historians, whether they be French or Russian. I think it's a good reminder of just how chaotic war is overall and that a lot of things are likely decided on the fly, or could even be happenstance. Looking back, it's easy to say this, why this and that led to either a failure or a success in war, but in reality so much of it must be winging it. Winging it and the old happenstance. How much of history is just happenstance? Probably more than we would... Wow, how could you ever, how could you ever measure that? But yeah, probably a lot. Twisted Every Way says this. These little historical interludes just aren't that interesting to me. I need to know what's happening with Pierre and Nikolai, etc. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think there's a general agreement, a general consensus that these... Uh, these... What did you say? Historical interludes, that's a good way to put it. These historical interlude chapters are generally a bit boring. You're not alone in thinking that. Uh, Coming up towards the very end of the year, there's like probably, you know, close to a month worth of those chapters. Uh, So bear that in mind. But I will say this. The book kind of ends with those kind of chapters. But then it doesn't. You know, the very, very end, the last maybe, I don't know, 10 chapters or so, the very last 10 chapters uh, are back with our characters again. So I'm just letting you know in advance, it is going to get boring for a while, but hang in there and then we do go back to our characters and then you can say you've finished War and Peace. Karakikas said this though, the, me- the Medium article today was really good, it did a good job of relating these philosophical division- diversions to the overall novel. Well, that's good. Uh, it's good that you're still reading along with the Medium articles, I wonder how many people are actually going into the Daily Medium articles. I know I'm not at the moment, but um, I have gone through them in the past and they're bloody brilliant. Um, alright, let's read chapter 2. It's pretty short, so this shouldn't take long. The famous flank movement merely consisted in this. After the advance of the French had ceased, the Russian army 
which had been continually retreating straight back from the invaders, deviated from that direct course and, not finding itself pursued, was naturally drawn toward the district where supplies were abundant. If, instead of imagining to ourselves commanders of genius leading the Russian army, we picture that army without any leaders, it could not have done anything but make a return movement towards Moscow. Describing an arc in the direction where most provisions were to be found and where the country was richest. That movement from the Nazni to the Ryazan, Tula and Kaluga roads was so natural that even the Russian marauders moved in that direction and demands were sent from Petersburg for Kutuzov to take his army that way. At Tarantino, Kutuzov received what was almost a reprimand from the emperor for having moved his army along the Ryazan road and the Emperor's letter indicated to him the very position he had already occupied near Kaluga. Having rolled like a ball in the direction of the impetus giving the whole of campaign and by the Battle of Borodino, the Russian army, when the strength of the imp that impetus was exhausted and no fresh push was received, assumed the position natural to it. Kutuzov's merit lay not in any strategic manoeuvre of genius, as it is called, but in the fact that he alone understood the significance of what had happened. He alone then understood the meaning of the French army's inactivity. He alone continued to assert that the Battle of Borodino had been a victory. He alone, who as commander-in-chief might have been expected to be eager to attack, employed his whole strength to restrain the Russian army from useless engagements. The beast, wounded at Borodino, was lying where the fleeing hunter had left him. But whether he was still alive, whether he was strong and merely lying low, the hunter did not know. Suddenly the beast was heard to moan. The moan of that wounded beast, the French army, which betrayed its calamitous condition, was the sending of Lauriston to Kutuzov's camp with overtures for peace. Napoleon, with his usual assurance that whatever entered his head was right, wrote to Kutuzov the first words that occurred to him, though they were meaningless. Monsieur le Prince Kutuzov, I am sending one of my adjutants general to discuss several interesting questions with you. I beg your highness to credit what he says to you, especially when he expresses the sentiment of esteem and special regard I have long entertained for your person. This letter, having no other object, I pray God, Monsieur le Prince Kutuzov, to keep you in his holy and gracious protection. Napoleon, Moscow, October 30, 1812. Kutuzov replied, I should be cursed by posterity, where I looked on as the initiator of a settlement of any sort, which is the present spirit of my nation. But he continued to exert all his powers to restrain his troops from attacking. During the month that the French troops were pillaging in Moscow, and the Russian troops were quietly encamped at Tarantino, he, oh, sorry, a change had taken place in the relative strength of the two armies, both in spirit and in number, as a result of which the superiority had placed, had passed to the Russian side. Though the condition and numbers of the French army were unknown to the Russians, as soon as that change occurred, the need of attacking at once showed itself by countless signs. These signs were Lauriston's mission, the abundance of provisions at Tarotino, the reports coming in from all sides of the inactivity and disorder of the French, the flow of recruits to our regiments, the fine weather, 
the long rest the Russian soldiers had enjoyed, and the impatient impatience to do what they had been assembled for, which usually shows itself in an army that has been resting, curiosity as to what the French army, so long lost sight of, was doing, the boldness with which our outposts now scouted close up to the French stationed at Tarotino, the news of easy successes gained by peasants and guerrilla troops over the French, the envy aroused by this, the desire for revenge that lay in the heart of every Russian as long as the French were in Moscow, and above all, a dim consciousness in every soldier's mind that the relative strength of the armies had changed and that the advantage was now on our side. There was a substantial change in the relative strength, and an advance had become inevitable. And at once, as a clock begins to strike and chime as soon as the minute hand has completed a full circle, this change was shown by an increased activity, whirring, and chiming in the higher spheres. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for you. Kutuzov just laying low as he does, waiting to strike. Uh, just doing the old Kutuzov nothing. And just like that, hey presto, the tides have slowly started to change. And it looks like now the Russians have the upper hand. Alright, have your say about the chapter on the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.